Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us so uh, well this morning. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> now, uh, I, I heard a rumor, though I think it's a substantiated rumor, that Joyce Gates is with us today. Is that correct? Are you Joyce? We haven't, we haven't met before. Yes, this is Joyce, right? Fabulous. Joyce Gates um, was, was married... If you don't know who Joyce is, Joyce was married to uh, Pastor Bill, Pastor Bill Gates, who was here for uh, many years as lead pastor, uh, several decades ago. And uh, Joyce, we haven't met, but I just wanted to say we're so thrilled that you're here, and uh, welcome. Uh, we have a, a lot of deep gratitude for the ministry of your late husband and yourself and your time here at Seven Oaks, and you are, you are deeply loved. So uh, we're so glad to have you here. And the timing of Joyce's visit with us is really interesting because that's a great segue into what I, I want to say next, and that is that next weekend we are going to be celebrating our 75th anniversary uh, here in Abbotsford, in central Abbotsford. Uh, so let me just explain to you a couple of things that have been, will be going on. Uh, it's up there anyway, but um, next Saturday night we're going to have a praise night right in here in this room, and you're invited to come at 6.30. And then uh, shortly after that, when, um, when the sun begins to set, we're going to go out uh, into the parking lot, and God willing, it won't be raining, and uh, we are going to relight the cross that's been part of our uh, Abbotsford skyline for so long, and it's all been fixed and tested, and we are going to light it, and uh, we're going to have some sort of celebration out there in the parking lot. We'll have hot chocolate. There'll be a photo booth for you to take photos, and we're just going to have a great time together. And then we're going to come back in here. And we're going to continue to worship. We're going to have some testimony stories as well. And so we're really looking forward to that and invite you to come and be part of that. Um, and then on Sunday morning for our service, we're going to have Pastor Errol here. And Errol Rempel was the lead pastor before me. And, um, and I'm going to do my best not to offend him by calling him a legacy speaker. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to not do it. I'll try. Uh, but Errol's going to be here, and he's going to be preaching, and Mark, our DS from the district office, is going to be here bringing some words and some, uh, and some prayer for us. Uh, we also are going to have some other special greetings that I'm not going to tell you about. You have to show up and find out, but you're going to love it. And, uh, and then afterwards, we're going to have lunch, so we'd love for you to stay around, uh, and we'll have lunch together over in uh, the gym and community room, which leads me to an ask. Um, if there is one, two, three, maybe four people who would be willing to help us out on Saturday, probably mid to late afternoon, uh, to just create some nice decor on the tables. We're going to have tables all set up in the gym and the community room. And uh, if you leave it to us pastors, they're just going to be plastic tables. Uh, but if some people with some eye for decor could come and put, you know, tablecloths, and we, we do have some centers and stuff, uh, some table centers, and make it look nice. Otherwise, you're just going to have to leave it in charge of, I don't know, Zach and Brian or something. And that's just, no offense, Zach, but it's going to be pretty miserable, brother. I, I, like, I love you, but I don't trust your decor uh, skills and gifts. So, um, uh, so if you can help us out, that would be wonderful. Uh, come and speak to me after the service. Send me an email, call in at the office, whatever. Just let me know, and we'll organize that for uh, the Saturday. Um, uh, so that's that. And uh, the other thing I wanted to just announce is um, Holy Spirit Encounter. Uh, that's coming up quicker than you think. 
uh, November 3rd and 4th. It's a Friday night for a couple of hours, all day Saturday, $30. It covers your lunch and coffee breaks on the Saturday. Uh, Jeremy and Carmen Kinneberg will be back here who were with us uh, in March for Soul Care. It's going to be a great conference. Uh, we need you to sign up really soon, please, so that we know numbers for lunch, so we don't make too much or too little. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. It's a key part of our discipleship efforts this year. So if you can sign up there, that would be uh, fabulous. A few weeks ago, we began a new teaching series for the autumn called Five Big Questions. And the, uh, the, the premise of the, the, uh, the teaching series is a little bit apologetic in nature. And what we're looking at is five questions that are really, really tough when it comes to our faith. And these five questions are actually questions that for people who are unbelievers and, you know, don't believe in the Christian message, actually will sometimes use these questions as reasons to not believe because they're just tough. You know, because there isn't an adequate or you've never heard an adequate answer to this question, I find it just, you know, not compelling to believe. And, and for Christians as well, we can really struggle and they can create difficulties and doubts for us. So we've been looking at five questions. Uh, we looked at, you know, is, is the Bible reliable? And how can we know that? We've looked at how can a good and benevolent God allow evil and suffering in the world? That's a perennial question that people have been asking for, for centuries. We looked at the question of science and faith. Do, are they compatible in any way or are they completely not? Does science in some way disprove faith? And then last week we looked at some of the exclusive claims of Jesus. Well, today I'm going to finish up the series, and then we'll, as I said, have the 75th next week, and then we're going to begin a new series after that, by trying to answer the question, was Jesus really resurrected? And Brenda told me that we have the kids in here today, and they are going to be counting how many times I say resurrection. Resurrection, 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 resurrection. <laughs> Did you get that? That was, that was four in a row. Resurrection. This is, Brenda, this is way too much fun. You shouldn't have told me this. This is good. So we're going to try to answer uh, this question uh, today. Because you see, at the very center of our faith, at the very center of Christian faith, is the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was being claimed to be Israel's long-awaited uh, Messiah, was crucified on a Roman cross. He died as a result of that crucifixion. He was buried in a tomb, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He came back to life. We claim that he was killed on a Friday. We call it Good Friday, day one. He was in the tomb all day Saturday, day two, and then was resurrected to life on day three that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And it's actually why, I don't know if you know this, but it's actually why historically Christians tend to worship on Sunday mornings. Um, we don't always, but, but it's one of the reasons. And, and that's because, you know, um, for Jews, the Sabbath is Saturday. And for a faith that sort of claims to come out of Judaism and to be the fulfillment of Jewish hope and expectation, a faith that says, actually, this message, this thing that God is doing has become fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and now it needs to move away from just ethnic Jews to embrace the whole world, um, this faith, it would have made sense for us to worship on a Saturday, but we didn't. We picked Sunday. And the whole reason we picked Sunday, the whole reason was because of the belief in resurrection. That is how central resurrection is to our belief, to the Christian gospel. Without resurrection, there would be no faith. There would be no Christianity. 
this building wouldn't be here. It would be a block of apartments or a mall or something. I wouldn't have the job I had. There'd be no such thing as pastors and priests um, and ministers and so on. I'd probably be a banker or a realtor or prime minister or king. (laughs) Why did you laugh at that? (laughs) Come on. So there would be... There would be no churches. There would be no pastors. Jesus of Nazareth would just be a curiosity of history. Uh, He would be this prophet-type guy who went around and did great things and taught great things and and, and, and claimed to do great miracles, but he would be somebody who, who ended in a tragic way. There would be no Christian faith without resurrection. But to the average person on the street, to the average person on the street of Abbotsford who doesn't have the God consciousness that we have, It sounds a bit like a fairy story, doesn't it? We know, and it's pretty widely believed, that once you're dead, you're dead. People don't come back to life. It is true that people can be resuscitated when somebody is dying. If if the uh, emergency services can get there quick enough, they can sometimes resuscitate someone. That's true. And and there's wonderful stories of, of, of how that's happened. There are actually stories of people who get resuscitated longer than we'd normally expect when they've been sort of dead, as it were, or dying for longer than we'd expect. And there's some pretty amazing stories out there, but we're talking about hours. We're not talking, or minutes, we're not talking about days. If we're talking about days, we're not talking about resuscitation anymore. We're talking about something completely different. And modern science will not allow us to talk about somebody who dies, who gets buried, and three days later comes back to life. That just doesn't fit the scientific method. And yet, that's what hundreds of millions of Christians throughout history have claimed happened 2,000 years ago to Jesus of Nazareth, to Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? Was he resurrected? How can we know and, and, and how was he indeed resurrected? So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at a couple of passages here. Coming up on the screen for you behind me is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, and it says this. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. So this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and, and he's, he's passing on to them what he'd heard, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried... And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, the apostle Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to someone untimely born, he also appeared to me. That is the earliest creedal statement of Christian belief that we have. It's earlier than the Gospels. It was written before the Gospels were written. It's the earliest creedal statement of of central belief we have. We're just going to quickly look at one verse from Acts chapter 4. It's verse 20. It says this, For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. That is eyewitness testimony spoken by the early disciples, the people who've been following Jesus for three years as he went around teaching and performing miracles and declaring that the kingdom was coming and all of that, were following him around. They were being tried in front of magistrates 
who are basically saying to them, stop spreading this stuff about Jesus. You need to stop it. Okay, the Romans killed him. He's dead. Go back to Galilee and get on with fishing. You need to quit doing this. What's going to happen is you're going to continue to create a commotion here in Jerusalem. The Romans are not going to be pleased about it, and they might come in and shut us down. So stop it. And their response was, I'm sorry, but we can't stop it. There's nothing that can stop us declaring what we are declaring. This has turned the world upside down. The most amazing thing possible has happened. The world will never be the same again, and people need to know about it. We can't keep quiet. A few days before that, those disciples were in the upper room hiding because they were worried after Jesus had been killed that they were next, that the Romans were searching them for them. They were petrified and timid and scared, probably waiting for the cover of darkness so they could sneak out of the city and head back north to home. That's who they were, and that's what they were doing. And Jeremiah Johnson, in his book, Body of Proof, writes this, on Friday night, the day of the crucifixion, the disciples were running scared. A few days later, they were more than willing to endure ridicule, imprisonment, mistreatment, and even death. Church family and friends, something happened in those couple of days that changed everything for those men. Something happened. They were petrified fishermen who were trying to go underground to save their own skin, and they became bold preachers who defied an empire. We stood before the the, the Sanhedrin, the the highest council, and said, sorry, but we cannot keep quiet. They walked away from their homes. They walked away from their livelihoods. They put their own lives at risk. They put the lives of their family at risk, all because they had come to believe that Jesus was Lord. And from these 12 bumbling, ordinary men, they were not of noble birth. They weren't famous. They weren't really, really well-educated or anything. But from these bumbling, ordinary men came a faith that outlasted the biggest empire the world has known and literally transformed the entire world. Something happened in those couple of days that transformed these men from this to this. It's remarkable. And what they claim happened was that they saw Jesus alive again, that he was resurrected, and it transformed these men. So let me just say this uh, in in case you're wondering. No historian worth, their, you know, worth anything, worth listening to, with any kind of academic integrity, would ever try to argue that Jesus as Nazareth never actually existed. Like, that's historical fact, right? Um, Jesus of Nazareth was not a made-up person. He, he was a real historic character. There is enormous evidence that he lived. There's enormous evidence that he was killed on a Roman cross. There's enormous evidence that he was buried in a tomb. There's also a lot of evidence that that tomb was found empty and the body has never been found. These are historic facts. What we're trying to figure out is how did the tomb become empty? What happened? But these are historic facts. And if anybody tries to deny that those things are facts, well, we might as well say that, well, King Henry VIII was probably fictional and so was Napoleon and maybe George Washington. Like you you can't argue that. Otherwise, you have to argue all of history. This is historical fact. So we're taking as given the person, the death, and the crucifixion, and and the burial in the empty tomb of Jesus. Again, Jeremiah Johnson, it's the most solid historical fact of the ancient world. There's actually more 
written about Jesus than, than anyone from that time. Now, there's been several theories that have been put out over the years. One of them, you may have heard of it, is called the swoon theory. And what they said is they're trying to explain uh, the empty tomb, and, and, and some have tried to say, well, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. And then later on, when they put him in the tomb, you know, he revived. And once he'd revived, you know, he, he moved the stone out of the way, and then he declared he'd been resurrected, and it was a big hoax. Now, that's been debunked for lots of different reasons. There's tons of reasons that that is, is, is not what would have happened. The most obvious one is that if Jesus was crucified, and if you've ever read the harrowing accounts of what crucifixion was like in the first century, he wouldn't have been able to get up. Like his, his legs would have been broken and, and shredded to pieces. He wouldn't be able to get up, let alone move a massive stone out of the way and then go and walk and meet people and eat with them and walk on the Emmaus Road with the disciples and all those kind of things. I mean, it's just, it's impossible, physically impossible that he would have been able to do that. And he would have looked awful. Um, certainly wouldn't have looked like a guy resurrected. So, uh, so there's, there's kind of things uh, like that that have been uh, sort of proposed as people try to figure it out. Um, uh, but that have been largely debunked. So, given all of that, given what we know from history, given what we know about the transformation of these men, given what we know about the claims, given what we know about these weird theories and so on, what then are the reasons that we have to say he was resurrected? And I'm just going to suggest a few, and I'm scratching the surface, because this is a massive, massive subject area, but we're going to have a go at scratching the surface here. The first one is this. There exists zero motivation for anybody to make up this story. There's no motivation at all for them to make up that story. For Jewish people, which the disciples were, they were Jewish men, they believed in an end-time resurrection, that one time, you know, in the future, when the world comes to an end, all of those who are righteous and have died in God, believing in Yahweh and so on, will be resurrected to life and inhabit, the, you know, a, a new world and, and so on. There, there was this kind of belief. Not, not all of them believed it, but there was this kind of belief in the resurrection. But they did not have any notion, any concept, any idea, any thought of the idea that Messiah, when he comes he will die and be resurrected as a single individual in the middle of history. There was no belief in that. What they thought was going to happen is Messiah is going to come back. He's going to lead the armies of Israel into Jerusalem and expel the Romans, and maybe he'll even go to Rome as well and expel Caesar. That's what they were hoping for, national liberation, not resurrection. So there is no belief. And if, you, if you're unsure of whether to believe me about that, in the New Testament, when Jesus predicts his death, Peter's like, no way. He says, no way, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. And he rebuked Jesus for it. And Jesus rebuked him back. So after Jesus' death, there would be absolutely no reason in the Jewish worldview to make up a story that this would-be Messiah or this Messiah had been resurrected from, from the dead. They would have just said, well... The resurrection is still going to happen at the end of time. That hasn't changed. It's just this Jesus, we thought he was a Messiah. I suppose he wasn't. He's like all the other would-be Messiahs. He died. Shoot. Let's hope the next one's coming soon. There will be absolutely no reason for them to make that story up. So if they claim that Jesus was resurrected, it was because they were convinced that's exactly what happened. What about the Jewish world? Uh, sorry, not the Jewish world. Um, the pagan world, the Greek world, the Roman world. 
There would be zero motivation to make up a story of resurrection if you wanted to reach the Gentiles and spread about this new religion. No reason at all. Because the Greeks read Plato. The Greeks just wanted the liberation of the spirit from the body. They, didn't, they looked down on the physicality of the body. The idea of a corpse coming back to life is just a grotesque thought to them. So uh, it would be a step backwards to have a body again. All they wanted was for the soul, the spirit, to be liberated from the body. So there was no reason if you were trying to win over uh, Gentiles to uh, create that story. Again, the only reason you tell a Gentile that this is what happened is if you really believe this is what happened. And another reason that there's no motivation is that all of the disciples ended up being imprisoned, persecuted, tortured in horrific manners, and most of them were brutally killed. If you made up that story because you wanted to create a new spiritual religion or something, there's no way you would be tortured brutally to death for a hoax. You'd say, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> we didn't really do it. Look, we hid the body. Let's go show you. Like, like, there's no way you'd be willing to die for it. The only way somebody would die for something like that is if you actually believed to the core of your being that what you had seen was Jesus resurrected and it meant everything. So reason number one is there's no motivation ever to, to create this story, to make it up. Uh, secondly, if, if they did make it up, let's just say, they did a really, really bad job. They did a really terrible job. Um, there are accounts from much later, um, second, third century, that people have written about the resurrection where they tried to polish the Gospels up. They tried to get the embarrassing bits out of it and, and make it more believable to try and convince people because they didn't think the Gospels did a very good job. And these are the reasons they didn't do a good job. If you were trying to convince first century people about Jesus being this victorious man who's winning over death, you would never share the Gethsemane story. You would have cut that right out of the Gospels. Let's leave that one out. Because there, Jesus doesn't look victorious. He's, he's crying and weeping. He's asking the Father to take away the suffering. You, you wouldn't leave that in there. If, if you're trying to convince people that Jesus is a son of God, you would never have... Um, you have to understand in that worldview, their, their understanding of, of kind of the gods and, and, and so on, particularly in pagan thought. Um, you would never have Jesus being betrayed. Like, that's embarrassing. If he's really a god, there's no way a mere human was going to get one over on him and betray him. Like, you would leave that out of the story as well. To do a better job, they could have written the Gospels to show Jesus coming to the ed educated and powerful of society, going to see Caesar in Rome and revealing himself to Caesar, not a bunch of fishermen no one's ever heard of. Like, he would change the story if you were trying to convince people of this new belief you had. Um, you could have had the guards at the tomb as witnesses. Oh, yeah, we saw the resurrected Jesus, but they didn't. They told the story of, uh, that they did about the... Um, about the gods, um, you could have done a better job harmonizing the ends of the Gospels because there's some stuff in there that's confusing to, to sort of work out. And, and finally, why on earth would you have women as the credible witnesses in the first century? In a patriarchal society where women weren't even allowed to give evidence in a court of law because they weren't seen as credible, they weren't educated, why on earth would you have women as the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? You'd have men, you'd have scholars, you'd have believable, credible people 
So you would change all of that. So for all of those reasons and many, many more, if you're making up a story about this, you did a really bad job in the Gospels. You could have shined up that story to make it much more believable. The fact that it's written the way it's written leads us to believe, well, it's just, that's what happened. They're just writing it as it happened. It actually has the air of credibility and believability because it isn't all shined up to try and win people over. It's just a declaration of what the witnesses are saying happened. Um, It should have died out. The faith should never have really gotten off the ground. It should have died out and never gotten beyond the first disciples, reason number three. The faith, um, the founder was a crucified criminal in the eyes of the people. Crucifixion was a heinous way to die. Judea at the time was this backwater of the Roman Empire, way out of the way, this tiny little province that people in Rome never really thought about, maybe had never heard of. And people in Rome, like Caesar, probably never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. It should have just died out. It's a small band of ordinary men and some completely non-credible witnesses in the women, it should have fizzled out. Except after the resurrection, after it happened, as the people began to search the Old Testament, and as they began to remember the things that Jesus had said, they realized so much of, of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection had been predicted and prophesied and pointed to. And Jesus himself even said, I am going to be hand handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to put me to death, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Jesus even called it and predicted it. The resurrected Jesus then sent the Spirit and told them to go into all the world and declare the gospel, which they did. This is how those men became emboldened preachers. You see, the resurrection is the only thing that made all of that possible. It provided truth and spiritual force to propel something forward that should have fizzled out in the first century. Number four, only the resurrection explains the conversion of people who weren't previously followers. Why would you become a follower of a dead would-be Messiah unless you believe that he'd been resurrected? Why would you ever become a follower? We'll use a couple of examples. Jesus' brother James and the apostle Paul. Neither of those men followed Jesus. Jesus' family, when he was alive, were concerned about him. They tried to restrain him. They thought he was going out of his mind. They said, what are you doing? The the family didn't all believe in, in his claims of who he was. Until after his death, James all of a sudden not only came to believe, but became the pastor of the mother church in Jerusalem. He ended up dying a violent death because of his conversion. Why would you be willing to die a violent death like that? Well, the Bible says that James met his resurrected brother and from then on declared him to be Lord and God. The resurrection was the reason he'd be willing to die. The apostle Paul, I mean, he's the perfect example. He hated the church. He hated Christians. He oversaw their death. He went to all over the province with zeal to try and kill Christians because he just thought it was an abomination about what they were doing. He was not a follower. And later on, he became a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but he became the most amazing missionary the church has ever known. He planted churches all over the known world. He wrote letters inspired by the Spirit that became part of Scripture. 
This is an incredible man. From that to that, it's incredible. And why? Why did the conversion happen? Because he claims to have met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was forever changed. There's no reason that Paul and James would have ever converted except for the resurrection. And we could say that for millions of other people throughout history, including many of us here in this room. Um, I'm going to just hit three more reasons really quickly uh, as we move to close and sing again. Um, Everywhere Christianity lands, society gets transformed. Um, We have to be careful with that one because we know the church has done some horrible things in the past, uh, unfortunately. Most of the time, what happens is that the church gets too intertwined with political power in a nation, which is always a bad idea. And then the political power goes off and does its beastly things to other people and in other nations, and the church somehow gets connected and caught up in that and does bad things. That's true. However, where there is a genuine move of Christianity that's not a part of a religious uh, political movement, but actually goes motivated by love, societies all over the world have been absolutely transformed. Ethics, morals, justice, love, compassion, care for the poor, on and on it goes. I would love if we had time to tell you how Christianity transformed the Roman Empire. If we had time, we could dive into that. It's so interesting. My own nation of Britain, how so much of what British people, and I would say Canadian people, American people, Western people, take for granted a lot of the good things, they all, have, they all come from Christian places where, where, driven by the gospel, people were trying to actually create a, a fair, just, and harmonious society that loved people. There is something, there is some power behind the transformation. Number six, resurrection power gets evidence all the time. With the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, a power got unleashed into our world, and miraculous things sometimes happen. And, and, and one of the things that happens, and there's many things, but one of the things is that people sometimes get miraculously healed. And it doesn't happen all the time. It only happens sometimes. And none of us... We're just normal people. We don't have power to heal anyone. But sometimes we pray for somebody and they get miraculously healed. It's happened in this room. It's happened in that room. It's happened all over the world. That isn't any power we have. We can't do anything. (laughs) But resurrection power of Jesus breathed into us through the Spirit absolutely can do powerful things. And finally... I want to close on the conversions of all peoples. Uh, The final thing to say is that from the very beginning, the faith of Christianity was always, always, always for all peoples of the world. It was never about being just for a certain type of uh, people or a certain select people or a certain ethnicity or anything like that. It's always been and always intended to be a global faith, and it's why it's stretched across every nation of the globe. When it began, its spiritual center was Jerusalem. It was a Middle Eastern religion only. And, and Christianity has had the unique um, ability to, to reorder its center of gravity in terms of where it lands. So it started in Jerusalem. It, Rome became the center of Christianity at one time. Uh, Britain and North America became the center of Christianity at one time. I would argue now the global south has 
South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and swaths of Asia have become the center places for Christianity where it's growing phenomenally, and it's actually dying largely in the West as people become more and more secular and, and, and jaded towards spiritual things. It's moved around the whole world. The message of Jesus reaches across ethnic, political, socioeconomic boundaries and finds its way into the lives of all peoples. And it's because the resurrection was never about Jesus coming to do this thing for just certain types of people. The resurrection was always about showing the entire world that they too, whoever they are, rich or poor, old or young, whatever ethnicity, if they put their faith in Jesus, can participate in a resurrection from the dead themselves one day. And that is our glorious hope. Death does not have to have the final word anymore. Now, we know that resurrections don't normally happen. If I was to do a poll in this room, um, I'm pretty sure that nobody here would be saying, oh yeah, I died a few years ago, but then I was resurrected. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would claim that. Um, if you do, please don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, you probably haven't. And we know that science teaches about how the body works and when the body breaks down and that death is inevitable for everybody and all those things, you can't escape that. It proves itself over and over and over and over again to be true. That is trustworthy science. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. We believe that. But the majority of humans on this planet actually also have an undeniable bent towards a spirituality of some kind, despite what you hear, particularly in the secular West. Philosophers of the 20th century got it wrong. The philosophers of the 20th century were saying things like, since the Enlightenment has now arrived, we can finally throw off all of this religious stuff that was only really there because we didn't know how to explain things, and so we explained it in terms of angels and demons and stuff. Now we know it's all about weather patterns and those kinds of things, right? That it was just a, a pre-modern belief. We can finally throw it all off because we've matured as a people, and now we just know how everything works. And they said that religion was going to die out, but actually the world's become more religious, not less. The actual number of people who are true atheists that actually think that there can't possibly be anything that exists beyond what we can, we can touch and feel and taste and so on is actually very small. It, it's more in the West, but it's actually very small. There, there aren't that many true, true atheists. A lot of people actually believe in some form of spirituality. And there's lots of different types of spirituality, of course. So with the resurrection of Jesus, I'm not holding it up here to you and talking about it and holding it up against the rest of us and what we experience and against science and physics and so on, because we're not talking about how this world and our bodies ordinarily act and react. So it isn't, it isn't flying in the face of science at all. We're not talking about that. We're actually talking about God. We're talking about another sphere of existence. We're talking about a spiritual realm that most people in the world believe in something spiritual. So a spiritual side to existence, a potential for life after death, marry that to the evidence we've discussed this morning, and it's absolutely reasonable to believe that Jesus was resurrected. Absolutely reasonable. That's a reasonable belief. And as we've seen today, only the resurrection can explain so many of the things back then, all throughout history, including today, and so if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then it has to be the most important event in human history. It has to be. 
God came down in human flesh to provide a way for humanity to find hope, salvation, and a future, life after death, a way forward out of our darkness. And therefore, that what all the message to the world and to all of us then is how are you going to respond to that truth? What do you do with that? And so I invite you to consider how to respond to the resurrection of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to have the worship team come back up. And close us out with song.